Well, good morning. I want to thank Vic for filling in. Where there's he? There we go. Thank you for filling in last week. Allowed Lori and I and Daisy to go out on vacation to Tennessee and enjoy the mountains. And um, as I mentioned in uh, Sunday school, drive through South Carolina too. For all you South Carolinians, there we go. Um, well, we're continuing this morning in our series, our sermon series entitled "The Coming of a King, Coming of the King," where we've been looking at the beginning sections of Luke's Gospel. And we're continuing today. Two weeks ago, we looked at the birth of Jesus. We entitled it uh, Christmas in June. Not really, but that was essentially the effect. Uh, looking at the birth of Jesus. And today, we're just continuing in the next narrative section, slowly working through the uh, beginning sections of the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, and now we're in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, uh, which progresses the narrative forward about 40 days. So Jesus has been born, and now he's going to be presented in the temple, and this is supposed to be about 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Uh, just a quick note, too, that before, we, before I read this text, that next week, Reverend Mike Glodo is back in the pulpit for us, and he's going to be administering the Lord's Supper again. Uh, and so we would encourage you to orient yourself uh, this week with what the Lord's Supper is as you prepare. There's a good article on our website that should help with that and uh, should guide you in your preparation. But for now, let's turn to our text this morning, and please follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading from the ESV version. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned in the Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew 
became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the promise that your word will not return to us void. So we ask that you would do for us, according to your will, what you would want to teach us from your word this morning, that you would encourage the the downcast among us, that you would convict the prideful, so that all of us may walk away knowing that you are a supremely good and gracious and tenderly loving, merciful covenant God. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with an activity of the imagination. And perhaps for some of us, this has been a reality at some point in our lives. I want you to imagine that you're applying for a job. So first, as a critical component of this hypothetical job application, and really any job application, is you put together a resume, right? It's pretty important. So you sit down at your computer several hours, meticulously crafting your resume, making sure you put in all of your uh, educational experience and your work experience, all the while trying to strike that magical balance between being boldly confident but not obnoxiously cocky. And as you're in the process of putting together your resume, you start to feel rather good about yourself and your chances of getting this hypothetical job. Maybe you start to say to yourself, wow, I really am special, aren't I? How could they not hire somebody like me? And after you conclude your resume and you in cover letter, double-checking, of course, all of your spelling and your grammar and so forth, you send your resume out and you begin playing the waiting game. A week passes, and to your relief, you got the phone call that you've been anticipating all along. It's the job calling, and they want you. That's right, you, for an interview. You made it to the next step. Congratulations. Maybe you pump your fist in victory, all the while still acutely aware that you're not quite out of the woods yet, but slowly your confidence is building. It's beginning to grow. A few more days pass, and the day of the interview comes, and so you walk into the office, nervous, yes, but with your head held high, ready to employ that impressive interviewing etiquette that Shane Bartholomew taught you. But as you're waiting in the office and you familiarize yourself with your surroundings, you realize the first obstacle is in your midst. You see, there are others also around you who are dressed in their business attire and carrying their portfolios in hand. And it doesn't take long for you to realize that you have some competition for this job. Naturally, you're curious. You want to find out exactly what you're up against. So you quickly eye up the competition, and you find a seat next to the most friendly-looking one of the bunch. And you begin to ask some questions, put out some feelers to this hypothetical person, just to learn what their cards are. What, What are you really up against? Maybe you'll learn that these other individuals are no real threat to you. But as you progress with this tactic, you slowly piece together their qualifications and realize that this person you're sitting next to is far more qualified than you are. Uh Uh-oh, your confidence is slowly beginning to wane. But no worries, though. Maybe Maybe this was just one isolated incident. Maybe you just so happened to sit next to the most qualified person in this room. So you stand up, and you begin pacing with purpose towards somebody else in the room. And you employ the same type of strategy, throwing out some innocent enough feelers, trying to get a sense of what exactly you're up against. But unfortunately, this time too, you realize that this person is far, far more qualified than you are. 
And by the time your name is called for the interview, you're just waiting for it to be over because you know that there's really no hope of getting this job. You see, you arrived at this hypothetical interview hopeful that you were the man or woman for the job. But because your lifeline has naturally enough been attached to your resume and what you bring to the table, when you realize that others had exceedingly better resumes, all seems hopeless. Well, although this is a hypothetical situation, I wonder if this portrait actually has a lot in common with real life. Especially as Christians, it, it so often seems, at least functionally, that our hope is so tightly bound to our spiritual resumes, to what we bring to the table, to maybe our devotional life, our morality, or the evangelistic fruit that our personal ministries produce, that when we encounter other Christians that seem to have it far more together than we do, if we often feel like our hope is just tragically dashed in a moment. Well, friends, I think our passage today is instructive along these lines, primarily because it implicitly calls into question where we find and where we center our hope. It calls us away, first, from endless introspection and from that rigid comparison with other people that we so often can find ourselves in the midst of. And then it gently prods us to recalibrate and recenter where exactly we find our hope, where we find meaning and life. You see, this passage today presents us with various characters who possess incredibly attractive spiritual resumes, resumes that perhaps make us all timid and perhaps more vividly aware of how we don't measure up. After all, who among us can say, like is said about Anna, that we worship with fasting and prayer night and day? I know that I can't say that. But yet despite the exemplary resumes of piety in this text, and we'll look at them very shortly, what we find is that each godly person in this text isn't boasting about what they bring to the table. Rather, what we find is that each person is so captivated by the Messiah, they're so captivated by Jesus Christ, that there's all, despite what they really do bring to the table, there's almost this trace of emptiness or incompleteness in them until they encounter Jesus Christ. So let's briefly look at these individuals. First in our text, we meet Joseph and Mary, and their actions in the first three verses, 22 uh, through 24, at the head of the passage, reveals quite a lot about the kind of people they are. Now, without diving into all of the specifics that are here regarding ceremonial requirements and so forth, what we find is, simply put, that they are doing exactly what the law required them to do. But importantly, even more, they're actually going above the law in what they're doing. I'm told that the law didn't actually require them to physically bring their firstborn son to the temple. Thus, Luke is intentionally painting for us in this description of what Joseph and Mary are doing, a picture of exceptional piety and godliness. And they'll continue to do that as we'll see in two weeks in the next narrative section that we'll look at. Well, second, we meet Simeon who we're told is righteous and devout. Now, this short phrase might not seem like a big deal to us, but through this description and through the background that's sort of uh, implied in it, Luke is intentionally painting for us an absolutely exemplary saint. And then finally, we meet Anna, who, as we read in verse 37, did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, 
and pray, with prayer night and day. Not only is she totally focused here on serving God, but as a woman who had been a widow for many years, one commentator notes that she chose a lifetime of service to God over remarriage, an action that was highly regarded in such a first century milieu. Friends, these are three descriptions that we find in our text right at the outset of incredible spiritual resumes. These are exemplary saints who have resumes worth imitating and emulating. But yet, despite their very real, very exemplary spiritual resumes, we discover that each one of them are absolutely enraptured with the kingdom of God that the Messiah brings. This is what the consolation of Israel means. We read in verse 25 of our text, Simeon is said to be waiting for the consolation, or we might say the comfort of Israel. Now this is the, this consolation or comfort of Israel is the epic of redemption that Jesus Christ brings, that Israel had been waiting for, the new covenant, we might say. And I'm using all of these terms uh, somewhat synonymously, meaning redemption, the coming of the new covenant, the consolation of Israel, sort of intertwining all of those together. But all of that is what Jesus brings, and that is what Simeon is waiting for. That's even what Anna is waiting for, as we read in the latter part of our text, that uh, she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. These are saints with exceptional resumes of piety and godliness, and yet each one of them is focused outward on Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, by illustrating that the center of hope for each of these characters is set on Jesus Christ and what he brings, Luke is implicitly also calling you and I, as readers, to set our hopes not on what we bring to the table. He's calling us not to compare our resumes with their resumes, but he's instead moving our eyes so that we fix our eyes, that we fix our gaze, and that we fix our hope on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and all that's entailed with what he brings. Jesus brings redemption to his people. And this passage describes in subtle and not so subtle tones and hues what this redemption looks like for you and I. So as we continue to work through this text this morning, what I want us to see is, first of all, Jesus. I want us to primarily see Jesus. But then I want us to see the redemption and the consolation that Jesus brings. And while there's much we could see from this text about Jesus's redemptive work, I want us to focus on just three traits of his work as we continue in this text. And those traits I want us to focus on are, one, the redemption Jesus brings is spirit-infused and orchestrated by the Father. Two, it's community-forming redemption. And three, it's tenderly loving redemption. So let me go over that one more time. The redemption Jesus brings is spirit-infused and orchestrated by the Father. It's community-forming and it's tenderly loving. So first, the consolation Jesus brings is spirit-infused and orchestrated by the Father. In other words, the entire Trinity, or the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are intimately involved in the redemption of God's people, both in redemptive history, meaning both in this unrepeatable act where Simeon meets Jesus, and also in our redemption, even here in the New Covenant, even right now. Well, first, in our text, we meet the Holy Spirit, And it's no secret that the Holy Spirit is rather important to Luke. 
Already in chapter 1 of the infancy narrative section, we saw the Holy Spirit's work as the spirit of prophecy. Remember when the angel Gabriel announced announced to Zechariah about John's birth, he said the spirit would be upon him. The spirit would infuse his work. We saw the Holy Spirit's activity in the conception of Jesus to Mary. We saw that Elizabeth's spirit-led expression of praise when she meets Mary, remember when the two encounter each other together in the latter part of chapter 1, it's said to be spirit-led. And then in Zechariah's expression of praise in that text traditionally known as the Benedictus at the tail end of chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel, we read that that too was led by the Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit in Luke's Gospel, if we were to continue to work it out in the rest of the narrative, really surrounds and empowers all of Jesus' life, work, and ministry. And remember, too, that Luke is writing two volumes, right? The, the Gospel according to Luke is just Luke's first volume. He has a second volume called the Acts of the Apostles. And there we'll see the Acts of the Holy, Act of the Holy Spirit as he empowers the work of the apostles and his people. So really, the Holy Spirit is of crucial importance to Luke's, both Luke's two-volume narrative. We also know from the rest of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in the lives of believers, in the lives of you and I, right? As Christians, the Holy Spirit gives us everything we need for our walk with God. The Holy Spirit is the giver of gifts, spiritual gifts, right, to the church. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance of our salvation. To use Paul's language from Romans 8, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits Spirit, that we are children of God. And then in the same chapter, Romans 8, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit even intercedes for us in our prayers. Isn't that incredible? The Holy Spirit is that intimately involved in the lives of Christians, in the lives of you and I. But importantly, for all that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, and he does quite a bit, his primary role in the new covenant, where we stand now, is to point us to Jesus Christ, And that is exactly what we find in our passage this morning. Three times in the span of three verses, if you're looking at your text, verses 25, 26, and 27, the Holy Spirit is clearly active in Simeon's life. And yet, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is moving in the background as he moves Simeon to Jesus Christ. Simeon was first promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon as he was in the temple waiting for the Messiah. And then at just the right time, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit physically moves Simeon to where Jesus is. Despite the very real presence of the Holy Spirit in this text, and despite the very real presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, the focus lies on Jesus. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us. I like what uh, I think Anglican theologian J.I. Packer writes about the Spirit's work in the lives of Christians. He writes this, The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The Spirit, we might say, is the matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker, whose role it is to bring us and Christ together and to ensure that we stay together. Friends, the gospel message we proclaim 
centers on the work of Jesus, not what we bring to the table. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all about Jesus' work. And if we were, again, to continue to work through Luke's Gospel, what we would find are many unique characters, many of whom are the poor, the outcast, and Gentiles who meet Jesus and are never again the same. And as we, friends, meditate our whole lives on who Jesus is, because really that's what the Gospels lead us to do, right? Remember a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, if you were here, Reverend Mike Lodo preached, he reminded us that really the whole question of the Gospels is who is this Jesus? And that's a question that you and I are called to ask our whole lives. Who exactly is this Jesus Christ that we're called to give ourselves to? And as we meet him, as we meet Jesus, in Luke's Gospel in particular, as we're challenged by him, and as our eyes are open to the beauty of who he is, the very reason Jesus is made attractive to you and I is because God is already at work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has pointed us and led us and prodded us and pointed us to Christ and mediates his work to us even now. If you've met Jesus Christ and you call him Lord, it's because God has sent the Spirit of his Son into, his, into our hearts, and he's at work even now in your life. But second from this text, we, we learned about the, the Son, Jesus Christ, and we learned about the Spirit, but the Father, the third person of the Trinity, is also intimately involved in redemption. Notice from our text how the Father has providentially organized this very encounter between Simeon and Joseph, Mary, and Jesus through the Word of God. Joseph and Mary, in verses 22 through 24, they don't just willy-nilly happen to show up in Jerusalem and at the temple precincts. No, they show up at the temple precincts because they're obeying the word of God and the regulations that God himself had set forth thousands of years prior, which is what leads them there to Jerusalem and the temple. Joseph and Mary come to Jerusalem and come to the temple at just the right moment, at just the right time, not by some chance, but because the Father has orchestrated this entire meeting between Simeon and Jesus, Anna and Jesus, through using the Word of God. Friends, we have in our text this morning an incredible picture of how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together for the redemption of God's people. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies the work of Christ. And although this this text that we're reading today points us primarily to the one who will accomplish redemption, it points us primarily to Jesus Christ, we find that the entire Godhead is involved in our salvation. Doesn't that just leave you in awe of who God is? That the God of the universe has involved himself in the lives of you and I, in the lives of his people. And by the plan of the Father, the work of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been adopted as children of God. The consolation Jesus brings in redemption is consolation that is steered, orchestrated, accomplished, and applied by an all-powerful, tender-loving, triune God. This leads to our second point. Second, the consolation Jesus brings is community-forming. Unfortunately, I think it's our tendency, especially in American evangelicalism, to think of salvation or redemption in purely individualistic terms. 
And while there's certainly an individualistic component, the goal of our redemption is communal. We have been redeemed for community. Let me read again from the text just to continue to orient us to where we're getting these ideas from. And the text I want to orient us to here is just verses 28 through 35. Let me read. It reads, He, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. First, we find that redemption is corporate and it's universal in scope. It's corporate in that the announcement of good news is is an announcement to a people as a whole, not just to one individual. And it's universal in scope, meaning that the nations are now included in the corporate people of God. This is salvation that has been prepared in the presence of all peoples, a remnant from all nations. This is salvation that's revelation to the Gentiles, these unclean despised, immoral Gentiles would be invited and welcomed into the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God is at work forming a community without ethnic or racial or social barriers. It's a community that welcomes the outcasts of society. And again, this is a particularly important theme in Luke's gospel. Remember, all the way back in the prologue to Luke's gospel, so those first four verses that stand at the head of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us he's, he's addressing this guy named Theophilus, who's a Gentile, and Luke's purpose is to give Theophilus and the other Gentile readers who are reading Luke's gospel assurance that they too can be included in the people of God. Thus, Simeon's address here is further assurance to Gentile readers that yes, Christ's work is for them too. Now the inclusion of Gentiles, and I'm using, non, I'm using Gentiles as non-Jews, I'm using that, assuming that people know what that is, but maybe you don't. I'm using Gentiles simply means non-Jews. Now the inclusion of Gentiles wasn't a new idea. Israel, since they were formed into a people in the desert thousands of years prior that we read about in those first five books, of the, uh, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, when they were formed in the desert thousands of years prior, and particularly in Deuteronomy, as they're giving their marching orders to enter the promised land, they were called to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be a community that welcomed the alien and the sojourner into their midst. In fact, there are laws in Deuteronomy that are supposed to protect the sojourner and the alien. They were called to be a people that welcomed the sojourner and the alien and pointed them to the God of the universe. Israel was supposed to be the canvas on which God would paint his work for the whole world to behold. In fact, prophetic visions abound in the Old Testament of Israel assuming this role that they should have assumed. But where Israel failed, and failed they did, they failed at their calling, Jesus succeeded. And this explains, in part, Simeon's jubilant prophetic expression of praise. 
You see, Simeon is probably well acquainted with the fact that his people, the Jews, have blown it. They failed to live their calling uh, as a light to the nations. They've succumbed to idolatry in the past. But when Simeon meets Jesus, he rejoices because everything Israel was supposed to be is now set before him. And in ecstatic joy, he scoops up the most profound hopes for his people into his arms, the incarnate Son of God, and rejoices that redemption for the nations has come at last. Isn't it remarkable that Simeon, Simeon here is rejoicing, not in what Jesus will do for him, per se. Even Simeon's rejoicing is other-centered. <laughs> He's rejoicing in the fact that a diverse community that Jesus will form, including both Jews and Gentiles, has happened and is happening in Jesus Christ. His passion is who Jesus is for the nations, not just for him alone. Friends, are you this passionate about what God has done in Christ for others? Are you this passionate about the mission of God? But while the redemption Jesus brings is community forming, we also find an ominous note about the division Jesus brings too. Look again at verse 34, where we read, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Now this is imagery that Luke is employing, Simeon and Luke are employing, that harkens back to the prophet Isaiah, you know, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah writes about, in chapter 8 of his, of his uh, prophetic work, that God, God has set up a stone of stumbling over which some fall and are broken. But the same stone later, in chapter 28 of Isaiah, is a precious cornerstone that will not disappoint those who trust in it. Simply put, Jesus is this stone, who although he unifies Jew and Gentiles, he also brings division. And as we trace this theme of division, of how Jesus' ministry is divisive in Luke's gospel, we indeed find that Jesus' ministry will generate two different reactions. And in general, Luke highlights that it's the poor, the needy, the outcast, those who have come to terms with their humble estate, who are the ones that cling to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, whereas the well-to-do, the prideful, and the self-sufficient don't. They stumble over the rock of stumbling. This division that's hinted at in our passage this morning, Jesus tells us later in Luke's gospel, can even divide family against itself. In Luke 12, we learn that a commitment to Jesus can divide father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I remember several years ago, when I was on staff with Campus Outreach, um, right here in town, uh, I, I was friends with an international student, and he had become a Christian several years prior, but he told me the story that when he became a Christian, he called up his mom overseas, telling him that, hey, I, I became a Christian. And she was a little bit hesitant. She said, if I remember correctly, well, that's all well and good. I mean, that's fine if you want to do that and you want to become a Christian, but don't you dare do that baptism thing. Don't you dare do that. Now, although I've never experienced familial division like that in my life, maybe some of us have. Submitting to Jesus as Lord, not just giving lip service to him, has the very real potential to strain 
and even several relationships that we hold dear. Relationships within the family and even relationships with maybe some of your lifelong friends. Christ himself tells us that this is a very real possibility. And I wish that weren't so. I wish relationships could remain intact. It's incredibly painful when that happens. And if it has happened to you, it might even lead us to question whether or not Christ is worth it. But friends, if that describes you, the only hope that I can offer is that even if Christ costs you your family, even if Christ costs you your dearest relationships here on earth, he hasn't left you high and dry. He has indeed given all of us a family, a real family in the church, in the body of Christ. And he has made his home among his church in the Holy Spirit. We have a family in the body of Christ, and we also have a God who is tenderly loving. And this leads to our final point. Third, the consolation, the redemption Jesus brings is tenderly loving. You see, throughout this passage, we find God's compassion and tender mercy on display in that he's visited these humble, elderly, pious individuals in their old age and at the end of their lives. He sustained them in their frailty so that they could behold the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and have their hopes fulfilled. The compassion of God is truly riddled throughout this text, but I just want to focus on one short phrase that we find in verse 35, where in the midst of Simeon's grand prophetic address to Mary and Joseph, we find a quiet parenthetical phrase directed towards Mary that reads, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. When we talk about Jesus as Christians, I bet our first thought, if I were to, if I were to guess for most of us, I bet our first thought jumps, and rightly so, to his lordship, his divinity, as the eternal son of God and the messianic role that he plays. And that's great. That's where my mind jumps to. That's certainly not wrong to have our minds jump there. But just as Jesus was fully divine in every sense of the word, he was also fully human. Unless we forget the humanity of Jesus, we're given in this short parenthetical phrase, the pain of a very real mother. Mary carried Jesus in her womb for nine months, Mary gave birth to Jesus, and Jesus still needed to be fed, cleaned, and so forth, like any human child. Though we're not given any historical information, there's really no reason for us to think otherwise. And so Simeon Simeon announces just what the incarnate, sinless Son of God would accomplish for humanity. In the midst of that grand announcement, he doesn't forget Jesus' own humanity, and that Simeon is speaking to a mother. This was her child, who she birthed and who she would raise. She was a mother who would, yes, witness her son grow strong and be filled with wisdom, as we read in verse 40, but she would also witness him be rejected, die the death of a criminal. But the insertion of this phrase that we read in verse 35 isn't merely to provide Mary with some objective information about what her son would experience. Yeah, it does that, of course. But it's also a subtle footnote in the grand course of this announcement that we have a God who cares. Mary's individual experience as a mother and the consequent heartbreak that would follow for her wouldn't be swallowed up or forgotten by God. I like what New Testament commentator Daryl Bach has to say about this by way of application. He writes, Mary will feel 
a mother's pain as she watches her son go his own way and suffer rejection. But the sword also reflects the pain anyone who identifies with Jesus feels as the world rejects what Jesus has to offer. Simeon's remark to Mary is an aside, but an important one, since it shows that identifying with Jesus has painful, personal consequences. The redemption Jesus brings is costly. It's worth it, but it's costly. Like we mentioned a minute ago, becoming a Christian and joining the church can have significant ramifications for relationships that you hold dear. And although I was never severed from my family, I did experience the severing of relationships with friends because I committed to Christ. Yet we have a God who knows the cost because we have a God who gave his own son for us so that we could be whole. The consolation of the king is consolation of a tender, compassionate, and merciful God. Well, in conclusion, friends, this passage calls us foundationally to look away from our resumes and to rejoice in the resume of the king and what he brings for his people. And what our God gives us is truly incredible. He gives us his mercy. He forms us into a community. And preeminently, he gives us himself. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us truthfully about what Christ accomplished for us. We ask that as we consider, again, who Christ is in our lives, that you would draw us away from looking inward, looking into ourselves for what we can bring to the table, and that you would instead turn our focus and to look at what Jesus has done. Look at what he's accomplished in redemptive history, and look even at how he's at work right now in our lives. Father, you are the incredible God who has come to us, the triune God who has made his home among his people. Lord, I don't think that there's any stopping, uh, any, any stop of gazing into the significance of what exactly that means. And I pray that each of us would meditate our whole lives on the significance of that. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.